Section 13 of The Evil Guest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Evil Guest by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Section 13. Time passed on. There was no renewal of the painful scene which dwelt so sensibly in the affrighted imagination of Rhoda. Marston's manner was changed towards her. He seemed shy, cowed, and uneasy in her presence, and thenceforth she saw less than ever of him. Meanwhile the time approached which was to witness the long-expected, and by Rhoda the intensely prayed-for arrival of her brother. Some four or five days before this event, Mr. Marston, having, as he said, some business in Chester, and further designing to meet his son there, took his departure from Grey Forest, leaving poor Rhoda to the guardianship of her guilty stepmother. And although she had seen so little of her father, yet the very consciousness of his presence had given her a certain confidence and sense of security, which vanished at the moment of his departure. Fear-stricken and wretched as he had been, his removal, nevertheless, seemed to her to render the lonely and inauspicious mansion still more desolate and ominous than before. She had, with a vague and instinctive antipathy, avoided all contact and intercourse with Mrs. Marston, or as, for distinctness' sake, we shall continue to call her Mademoiselle, since her return, and she on her part had appeared to acquiesce in a sort of scornful nonchalance, in the tacit understanding that she and her former pupil should see and hear as little as might be of one another. Meanwhile poor Willet, with her good-natured honesty and her inexhaustible gossip, endeavoured to amuse and reassure her young mistress, and sometimes even with partial success. We must now follow Mr. Marston in his solitary expedition to Chester. When he took his place in the stage-coach he had the whole interior of the vehicle to himself, and thus continued to be its solitary occupant for several miles. The coach, however, was eventually hailed, brought to, and the door being opened, Dr. Danvers got in, and took his place opposite to the passenger already established there. The worthy man was so busied in directing the disposition of his luggage from the window, and in arranging the sundry small parcels with which he was charged, that he did not recognize his companion until they were in motion. When he did so, it was with no very pleasurable feeling and it is probable that Marston, too, would have gladly escaped the coincidence which thus reduced them once more to the temporary necessity of a tete-a-tete. -tete. Embarrassing as each felt the situation to be, there was, however, no avoiding it, and after a recognition and a few forced attempts at conversation, they became, by mutual consent, silent and uncommunicative. The journey, though in point of space a mere trifle, was, in those slow-coach days, a matter of fully five hours' duration, and before it was completed the sun had set, and darkness began to close. Whether it was that the descending twilight dispelled the painful constraint under which Marston had seemed to labour, or that some more purely spiritual and genial influence had gradually dissipated the repulsion and distrust with which at first he had shrunk from a renewal of intercourse with Dr. Danvers, he suddenly accosted him thus— dr danvers i have been fifty times on the point of speaking to you confidentially of course while sitting here opposite to you what i believe i could scarcely bring myself to hint to any other man living yet i must tell it and soon too or i fear it will have told itself dr danvers intimated his readiness to hear and advise if desired and marston resumed abruptly after a pause pray dr danvers have you heard any stories of an odd kind any surmises i don't mean of a moral sort for those i hold very cheap to my prejudice indeed i should hardly say to my prejudice i mean i ought to say in short have you heard people remark upon any fancied eccentricities or that sort of thing about me he put the question with obvious difficulty and at last seemed to overcome his own reluctance with a sort of angry and excited self-contempt and impatience 
Dr. Danvers was a little puzzled by the interrogatory, and admitted in reply that he did not comprehend its drift. "'Dr. Danvers,' he resumed sternly and dejectedly, "'I told you in the chance interview we had some months ago that I was haunted by a certain fear. I did not define it, nor do I think you suspect its nature. It is a fear of nothing mortal, but of the immortal tenant of this body. My mind, sir, is beginning to play me tricks. My guide mocks and terrifies me.' There was a perceptible tinge of horror in the look of astonishment with which Dr. Danvers listened. "'You are a gentleman, sir, and a Christian clergyman. What I have said and shall say is confided to your honour, to be held sacred as the confession of misery, and hidden from the coarse gaze of the world. I have become subject to a hideous delusion. It comes at intervals. I do not think any mortal suspects it, except maybe my daughter Rhoda. It comes and disappears, and comes again.' I kept my pleasant secret for a long time, but at last I let it slip, and committed myself, fortunately, to but one person, and that my daughter, and even so I hardly think she understood me. I recollected myself before I had disclosed the grotesque and infernal chimera that haunts me. Marston paused. He was stooped forward, and looking upon the floor of the vehicle, so that his companion could not see his countenance. A silence ensued, which was interrupted by Marston, who once more resumed. "'Sir,' said he, "'I know not why, but I have longed, intensely longed, for some trustworthy ear into which to pour this horrid secret. Why, I repeat, I cannot tell, for I expect no sympathy, and hate compassion. It is, I suppose, the restless nature of the devil that is in me. But, be it what it may, I will speak to you, but to you only, for the present, at least, to you alone.' Dr. Danvers again assured him that he might repose the most entire confidence in his secrecy. The human mind, I take it, must have either comfort in the past, or hope in the future, he continued, otherwise it is in danger. To me, sir, the past is intolerably repulsive, one boundless, barren, and hideous Golgotha of dead hopes and murdered opportunities, the future still blacker and more furious, peopled with dreadful features of horror and menace, and losing itself in utter darkness. Sir, I do not exaggerate, between such a past and such a future I stand upon this miserable present and the only comfort I still am capable of feeling is that no human being pities me, that I stand aloof from the insults of compassion and the hypocrisies of sympathetic morality, and that I can safely defy all the respectable scoundrels in Christendom to enhance by one feather's weight the load which I myself have accumulated, and which I myself hourly and unaided sustain. Dr. Danvers here introduced a word or two in the direction of their former conversation. "'No, sir, there is no comfort from that quarter either,' said Marston bitterly. "'You but cast your seeds, as the parable terms your teaching, upon the barren sea, in wasting them on me. My fate, be it what it may, is as irrevocably fixed as though I were dead and judged a hundred years ago. This cursed dream,' he resumed abruptly, "'that every day enslaves me more and more, has reference to that—that that occurrence about Winston Berkeley. He is the hero of the hellish illusion.' At certain times, sir, it seems to me as if he, though dead, were still invested with a sort of spurious life, going about unrecognized, except by me, in squalor and contempt, and whispering away my fame and life, laboring with the malignant industry of a fiend, to involve me in the meshes of that special perdition from which alone I shrink, and to which this emissary of hell seems to have predestined me. Sir, this is a monstrous and hideous extravagance, a delusion, but after all no more than a trick of the imagination." The reason, the judgment, is untouched. I cannot choose but see all the damned phantasmagoria, but I do not believe it real, and this is the difference between my case and—and—madness. 
They were now entering the suburbs of Chester, and Dr. Danvers, pained and shocked beyond measure by this unlooked-for disclosure, and not knowing what remark or comfort to offer, relieved his temporary embarrassment by looking from the window, as though attracted by the flash of the lamps, among which the vehicle was now moving. Marston, however, laid his hand upon his arm, and thus recalled him, for a moment, to a forced attention. "'It must seem strange to you, doctor, that I should trust this cursed secret to your keeping,' he said, and, truth to say, it seemed so to myself. I cannot account for the impulse, the irresistible power of which has forced me to disclose this hateful mystery to you, but the fact is this, beginning like a speck, this one idea has gradually darkened and dilated, until it has filled my entire mind.' The solitary consciousness of the gigantic mastery it has established there had grown intolerable. I must have told it. The sense of solitude under this aggressive and tremendous delusion was agony, hourly death to my soul. That is the secret of my talkativeness, my sole excuse for plaguing you with the dreams of a wretched hypochondriac. Dr. Danvers assured him that no apologies were needed, and was only restrained from adding the expression of that pity which he really felt, by the fear of irritating a temper so full of bitterness pride and defiance. A few minutes more, and the coach having reached its destination, they bid one another farewell, and parted. At that time there resided in a decent mansion about a mile from the town of Chester a dapper little gentleman whom we shall call Dr. Parks. This gentleman was the proprietor and sole professional manager of a private asylum for the insane, and enjoyed a high reputation and a proportionate amount of business in his melancholy calling. It was about the second day after the conversation we have just sketched that this little gentleman, having visited, according to his custom, all his domestic patients, was about to take his accustomed walk in his somewhat restricted pleasure-grounds when his servant announced a visitor. "'A gentleman,' he repeated. "'You have seen him before, eh?' "'No, sir,' replied the man. "'He is in the study, sir.' "'Ah! A professional call. Well, we shall see.' So saying, the little gentleman summoned his gravest look, and hastened to the chamber of audience. On entering he found a man dressed well, but gravely, having in his air and manner something of high breeding. In countenance striking, dark-featured and stern, furrowed with the lines of pain or thought, rather than of age, although his dark hairs were largely mingled with white. The physician bowed and requested the stranger to take a chair. He, however, nodded slightly and impatiently, as if to intimate an intolerance of ceremony, and advancing a step or two, said abruptly, "'My name, sir, is Marston. I have come to give you a patient.' The doctor bowed with a still deeper inclination, and paused for a continuance of the communication thus auspiciously commenced. "'You are Dr. Parks, I take it for granted,' said Marston in the same tone. "'Your most obedient, humble servant, sir,' replied he, with the polite formality of the day, and another grave bow. "'Doctor,' demanded Marston, fixing his eye upon him sternly, and significantly tapping his own forehead, "'can you stay execution?' The physician looked puzzled hesitated, and at last requested his visitor to be more explicit. "'Can you,' said Marston, with the same slow and stern articulation, and after a considerable pause, "'can you prevent the malady you profess to cure? Can you meet and defeat the enemy half-way? Can you scare away the spirit of madness before it takes actual possession, and while it is still only hovering about its threatened victim?' "'Sir,' he replied, "'in certain cases, in very many indeed, the enemy, as you well call it, may thus be met and effectually worsted at a distance. Timely interposition, in ninety cases out of a hundred, is everything, and I assure you, I hear your question with much pleasure, inasmuch as I assume it to have reference to the case of the patient about whom you desire to consult me, and who is therefore, I hope, as yet merely menaced with the misfortune from which you would save him. 
End of section 13.